Welcome back, everyone. If it works to have your video on, it's great to see people as I talk and then as we talk together. So if that can work for you in terms of bandwidth, great to be able to, to see people. So again, uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I think for some. Um, this is the third talk in a series. Some of you have been here for now all three. And the talk today will continue the exploration of what I would say is the core teaching of the Buddha that can be expressed in a very simple way and that is right at the center of 2,600 years of tradition. Now, even with all the different, uh, more esoteric teachings, whatever, about rebirth or emptiness or uh, the subtleties of the nature of self, uh, the teaching we've been exploring and will continue to explore today can be understood <clears throat> quite simply, and I think it's right at the center, and it can be a kind of a guide for our practice, a kind of North Star that lets us know what's at the center of our practice. And that teaching, as expressed by the Buddha, is this. I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. Dukkha is usually translated by the word suffering, which I think is, can be problematic unless we have a very precise definition of suffering. But it sounds good, doesn't it? If I engage in Buddhist practice, there'll be no more suffering. Anyone want to sign up for that? <laughs> okay. Sounds good, right? Right? And yet, what does it actually mean? Again, in English, uh, suffering is you know, often used without too much precision. Sometimes it can mean what's difficult or painful. Will our determined practice end us from ever experiencing what's difficult or painful? I don't think so, right? So that's what we've been exploring the last two weeks. And I initially went through, and I'll do this very briefly now, went through some of the reasons for some confusion about this teaching. And I'll give some justification for why I think that the best translation of dukkha for our purposes, for understanding what the end of dukkha means, is something like reactivity. You know, as we as the, the term I used in the guided meditation, meaning the compulsive or often unconscious, somewhat automatic, grabbing hold of the pleasant and pushing away of the unpleasant. You know, at the level of the body, through our thoughts, through our being judgmental, blaming, all sorts of things, right? So I'll very briefly review 
what I've covered in the last two sessions, the last two weeks. And I'll also review briefly what we covered um, two weeks ago. We then looked at what the nature of individual practice is in terms of this teaching. In other words, how do we work with reactivity? At the individual level, last time I brought in how to look at practicing with reactivity in terms of our relationships. And today I'm going to bring in looking at how we work with reactivity that is there at the social level. And I'll, I'll explicate that. And so I'm giving, therefore, the outlines of what we might call a comprehensive practice of how we can bring in this core teaching into all the parts of our lives. And I'm I'll be, you know, in a sense, giving an outline or an overview or a sketch. We easily could take this teaching and explore it together for six months or six years, right, and go into a lot of depth and detail. It could easily be the curriculum for whatever, uh, undergraduate or graduate education. And because there's all sorts of uh, detail, all sorts of complexities and so forth. But I do want to give the give that overview and that can be helpful. So the Buddha did teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. We saw, especially two weeks ago, that this can be confusing because in the teachings of the Buddha, which was through an oral tradition, there were at least four different possible meanings of dukkha, the first three of which don't really make sense of what the end of dukkha is. The first was, more or less, the dukkha means that which is painful or unpleasant. And this is there in the text when you read the Buddha saying, uh, you know, illness is dukkha, pain is dukkha, old age is dukkha, death is dukkha. And he's pointing to something very significant, areas which often lead to reactivity. But we could ask that question, does painful experience end when we're awake? Does practice lead to the end of pain? And the answer clearly is no. To be human is sometimes to have painful experiences. And I mentioned that the Buddha, when he was older, had uh, backaches and headaches. I'm very, very glad, as I've said sometimes, that that made it through the censors, right? Or made it through the uh, people who are doing the editing, you know? And so that meaning of dukkha, and that, that meaning of dukkha, doesn't change when we're awake or practicing skillfully. And similarly, there were two other accounts of dukkha. One was that there is dukkha because that which is pleasant won't last. It'll change, right? But all that, that was one of the meanings of dukkha that Buddha sometimes gave, but that doesn't change as well. That's always the case. So it doesn't make sense of the end of dukkha. Similarly, it's sometimes said that there's dukkha um, in that uh, that which is conditioned, a conditioned experience, can't bring lasting satisfaction. 
you know, that's significant for our practice because it points to the way that it's unskillful to grasp after anything that won't bring us lasting happiness. That is a helpful teaching, but if we ask, does that aspect of do does that meaning of dukkha end? The answer is no. And so I pointed to the only sense in which uh, dukkha ends is brought out by a further teaching, which is the teaching of the two arrows, also the teaching of dependent origination. In the teaching of the two arrows, the Buddha asks, everyone at times has an unpleasant experience. It's like being shot by an arrow. The Buddha says this is like being shot by the first arrow. But he says, uh, how does a skilled practitioner differ from an unskilled practitioner? And he says, everyone, both types of beings, are sometimes shot by a first arrow. We sometimes have unpleasant experiences, bodily level, emotional level, mental level. He said, there's no difference in that. The difference is that the unskillful practitioner will shoot a second arrow because of the first arrow as if to help. So I have uh, unpleasant body sensations and I tense around them. That's shooting the second arrow as if to help. And I, I mentioned, I think last time, that the first area where mindfulness was brought into the medical field was in the area of chronic pain or some types of chronic pain where they have found that as much as 80% of the actual pain is in the tensing around the pain. That's the second arrow. The second arrow is also there when I'm judgmental, where I blame myself for what happens or blame others. And so the second arrow is expressly, um, especially taught in terms of what's unpleasant, but we can go back to the other teaching of dependent origination, which uh, teaches that with pleasant experiences, when we're not mindful and not aware, and when, we're, when we have habitual conditioning, we will tend to grab at the pleasant. And the other side of that is we will tend to push away the unpleasant. That grasping and that pushing away are what I'm calling reactivity. I would say that we can shoot the second arrow either by that grasping or by the pushing away. And that, I think, is the most fundamental meaning of dukkha. That's what we can end with our practice. We don't end the unpleasant, but we can end our reactivity or we can work on that. One way that I heard this expressed was uh, from uh, one of my students who lives in Kentucky, who was working in hospice. And she met a woman who was in hospice, who was a double amputee. And at the foot of her bed, she had a sign which said, pain is a given, suffering is optional. So she was actually giving suffering, a technical definition, very much like what I'm calling reactivity or the second arrow. So we would say the first arrow is a given. The second arrow is optional, even though often it's very hard to avoid, right? But ultimately it's optional. And that's the teaching 
that we're exploring here. And it gives us a very simple way to understand this core teaching. The, the key to the end of the dukkha is working with reactivity. That's it. We can have all sorts of other teachings. That's the core of 2,600 years of tradition. Be responsive rather than reactive. Okay, you don't need to read a single other book on Buddhism or meditation, although they could be helpful. But that's the core teaching, right? That's it. I'll end my talk and we can go have lunch or whatever. No, because um, uh, as is said in the Jewish tradition, all the rest is commentary. So I'll, I'll start with the commentary now. Uh, okay, so we have that core teaching. And then what we did the last two times, we also looked at ways to practice individually and ways to practice in our relationships with others. And so I mentioned several forms of reactivity. Uh, and I, I mentioned how to practice uh, individually. I think I gave five different guidelines. For, and I'll, I'll just review those briefly. First is we want to... Um, Notice the different forms of reactivity that occur in our experience. We can notice the way that there is a grasping after pleasant experiences. We notice, most of us notice this a lot with food. We can notice this with relationships. And, it, and I'll, I'll get to in a moment, uh, there's, a, there's a complexity here which is very interesting, which is that we can, I mentioned this in the guided practice, we can be grasping or pushing away something, and it doesn't mean that what we're grasping after or what we're uh, pushing away or the fact of us doing that is simply bad and we should get rid of it. So I may grasp after a second chocolate chip cookie. Has anyone ever done that? Looks like a small percentage of the group, but for but horror the counterpart. I can grasp after that, but the grasping is separate from whether it's a good idea to have a second chocolate chip cookie. Potentially, I could be really balanced and still have that chocolate chip cookie. You know, that that's more obvious when we look to the pushing away. The example I gave last time uh, was I can notice that a coworker didn't keep an agreement. And I can be very reactive about that, judgmental, blaming, whatever. But the, the, you know, my noticing of the lack of keeping the agreement is something that I want to, um, you know, ideally I want to follow up on. Same thing, I can be very reactive about something that was unfair or unjust. I can be very, very reactive, but I still may want to act and hopefully will want to act on what was unfair or unjust. Do you see that complexity? So what that means is when we notice reactivity, we don't simply suppress it all. So the language I use 
is we want to transform reactivity so that we can preserve anything that might be valuable while ending the reactivity. And we'll see in a moment, this is a major way that we can approach um, bringing this teaching into the social area, that we can act, you know, if we're activists, we can practice non-reactivity as activists, and arguably we're more skillful activists when we do that, rather than be very reactive activists, right? But the key is that the aim with, with um, reactivity is not to just suppress the whole experience, but it's to transform it and to preserve what may be helpful connected with our reactivity. Really crucial point. You'll notice sometimes teachers or even I've noticed writers don't quite get that point. You know, and particularly with something like being judgmental or blaming, which is, can be pretty hard territory. Often being judgmental or blaming may be connected with seeing something important. So we don't simply want to suppress being judgmental. If we just get rid of it, suppress it, then we won't deal with what's important, right? So that's why I use the word transforming reactivity. Crucial point that, again, um, I hear often, and I've read books where people uh, don't, you know, don't get that point. I think it's an important one. So first way of practicing, we want to notice all the different forms of reactivity. We want to try to bring mindfulness to them in the moment. And again, it's uh, helpful here. Another guideline is determine whether the reactivity is in the workable range. Sometimes the reactivity will be at that 9 or 10 level, and then we want to come back to balance. You know, if there's something like, I don't know, related to past trauma that comes up, my reactivity may be at the 9 or 10 level. Then I want to do something which sort of calms my system and brings me back to balance. Sometimes the reactivity will be at a very high level. I may be so upset I can't even be mindful, right? Something like that. Okay, and then I would want to come back to balance. If it's in the workable range, we want to bring mindfulness to the reactivity. Along the ways, we study all the ways we're reactive. I can be reactive grabbing at what I like, at, you know, again, food, relationships, ideas. I can be reactive negatively uh, towards, um, you know, what's unpleasant or painful, towards other people's ideas or my own, you know, something in myself. I can blame myself or judge myself. I can be reactive towards certain emotions. I don't like to feel lonely or to feel um, anger or, or whatever. And so we want to study all the ways that we are uh, reactive, both in the grasping and the pushing away. And Ideally, we want to do things which help us to separate out the uh, reactivity from what might be helpful or valuable. That's a, a key point. One practice which really helps that is holding our reactivity with the kind heart, with compassion. And so if we're looking a lot into reactivity, it's very, very helpful to bring in loving-kindness practice as a regular practice, bring in other heart practices like compassion or forgiveness. You can see why 
looking at and transforming reactivity could be something we look at for six months. We could take two weeks on loving kindness, two weeks on forgiveness, and so forth. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a deep area. So we want to see how we are reactive. We want to cultivate ways of being non-reactive, cultivate mindfulness, cultivate loving kindness. That's why daily practice is so important. We want to remember the teaching about the two arrows. When we find ourselves reactive can be really, really helpful just to uh, remember that teaching. Remember the teaching of the two arrows and so forth. Okay. Then we looked last time at relational practice. How to bring uh, the teaching about dukkha and the end of dukkha into relationships. Because ideally, this isn't just about you know, working with our own minds, working with our own hearts, our own bodies, but it's about bringing this teaching into all the parts of our lives. And so, in a way that's parallel to how we work individually, we want to look at what are the ways in the, my different kinds of relationships, work, family, close relationships, intimate relationships, what are the, way, what are the ways that there is reactivity? You know, and how am I reactive? And we can notice sometimes this may occur in my speaking. You know, that um, I, I gave the New Yorker cartoon last time where we have a, a woman talking to a, a, what looks like a, a detective uh, with a police officer behind the couch and a, a body on the floor behind the couch. And the woman says, I misspoke, he misheard shots rang out, right? Which is a metaphor for what can happen very quickly when two people talk together, right? It probably can happen even when we talk to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I misspoke, I misheard, internal shots rang out, right? As it could be like that sometimes, right? And so we want to study though those ways that there's grasping or pushing away Again, we can find that in our speech. We can find it, you know, in terms of what we like, what we don't like, when we're possessive, and, and so forth. We can find it when we're, we're judgmental. And I, I mentioned last time that there's several ways of practicing. Again, we could go into a lot of depth on this. One way is that we bring all of our individual practice into our relational lives. In other words, part of my practice in relationships is to do my own inner work. If I get angry in the context of relationship, I want to be with that in my mindfulness practice just on my own. You know, I mentioned that in every relationship, there are five possible forms of practice. And two are always possible. And those are the first two, which is that I can do my own individual inner practice on my own. And I can also try to be skillful in my speech and interaction. Those are always possible. The third and fourth are that the other person can do the same, which may or may not happen, right? The other person may or may not be a practitioner. Sometimes we think if the other person is not practitioner, I give up. Anyone have that thought sometimes? <laughs> you know, here am I, I'm trying very good to be a non-reactive and you're just you're just oblivious, you know, right? And so 
But we can always, uh, no matter what the other person is doing, we can do our own practice. Really crucial point. And then the last possibility is if we're all practicing, then we can be collaborative together and we can talk together. We can say, you know, sometimes when, you know, uh, you do this, I become reactive. Could we look at that together? Could we work, you know, could we look at that territory? And that can be beautiful when both uh, persons are interested in exploring reactivity. That can be, can be quite inspiring and relationships can be tremendous places of learning, you know, if, if we have that attitude. You know, not, not easy, but it's possible. And then I mentioned other things. Uh, again, uh, maybe I'll finish that we can bring this also to, to groups. We can have groups where we have guidelines for how we act together. And many of the groups that I teach or have been in one of the starting points is having a number of agreements and guidelines that help us practice together in groups. You know, one of them is saying, ouch, when something unpleasant happens, rather than just going into, why did you do that? Right? We say, ouch, that hurt, or something like that. You know, one group I was part of, we, we agreed if something awkward happened in a group, if someone said hippopotamus, we would all stop and look into what was happening. So you can use that, you know, but everyone has to know what that hippopotamus means we stop. You know, don't, don't just use that if other people don't know, that won't work so well. <laughs> okay, so lastly for today, I wanted to ask this question of what does this teaching about dukkha and the end of dukkha of non-reactivity look like when we bring it to the social dimension, when we bring it to um, looking at how we act in the social world and how we might uh, act if we're activists, we want to change things, how we relate to our own minds relating to the social dimension. And it's, it's a deep area. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be brief here. But, you know, first we want to look at the different forms of reactivity. And we can see these both individually. I can be reactive about what this or that public figure did or said. Anyone ever experienced that? I think, I think so. I can be reactive about what's happening. I can be reactive about injustice. I can be reactive about what happened. Um, again, here we want to distinguish the reactivity from what might be the insight or what might be valuable connected with my reactivity, right? And one of the interesting things we can also see is that there can be what we can call institutionalized reactivity. Many of our core institutions can be based on reactivity. And I have a friend and colleague named David Loy who lives in Colorado who's been especially articulate about what we could call institutionalized reactivity. And he, he talks about this particularly in terms of how certain institutions institutionalize greed, hatred, and delusion, right? Greed or grasping is a form of reactivity. And that can get institutionalized. You know, I think I've mentioned sometimes a story that I read where I read about a Wall Street trader who said, around here, 
there are only two kinds of motivation. And he said, usually it's greed. We have a, you know, the typical cycle is greed. But sometimes when things aren't going well, we have fear. And those are the two things that are happening. We have a greed cycle and a fear cycle. And the discussion was happening during a downturn in the stock market. So uh, this is what David Loy said about that way that um, things get institutionalized. He said, our economic system institutionalized greed, we were grasping, we could say, in at least two ways. Corporations are never profitable enough and people never consume enough. Many examples of institutionalized ill will or pushing away spring to mind. Racism, a punitive judicial system, the general attitude towards undocumented immigrants, and the plague of militarism. In the 20th century, at least 105 million people, and perhaps as many as 170 million people, were killed in war, most of them non-combatants. That's quite striking, isn't it? And so, you know, that um, something like, like war uh, can be very, you know, very much where reactivity just gets into um, a pattern. You know, I was, I was listening um, just a little while ago to um, a program on the 100th uh, birthday of the historian Howard Zinn. Anyone know Howard Zinn? He's the grandfather of one of our spirit rock teachers, Will Cabot Zinn. Howard Zinn was a great historian who I, who, um, who I met um, several times. And he, uh, he told the story of being in World War II as a bombardier. And right at the end of the war, he was, his crew was asked to bomb a town in France where there were a holdout of German troops. There was, you know, the war was about to end. But actually, what the, um, um, the military wanted to do was try out new weapons. They actually, this may have been the first time that napalm was used. And so they dropped napalm on this French town. About 90, 95% of the people killed were French civilians, not, you know, not... Uh, German troops. And it led him to say that, you know, and this could be said of reactivity generally, he said that uh, when you're in that reactive cycle, it corrupts everyone, even in a so-called good war, right? That there was, there was, you know, people get influenced by that, that reactivity. We get, I think we know when we're in reactive cycles, we just get locked in and we behave in certain ways. So I wanted to mention two ways, uh, two main ways of working with the reactivity we find related to social dimensions. One is working with our own conditioning, our own social conditioning, which is a big thing. And the second is bringing non-reactivity into social action. Okay, so I'll talk briefly about the first and a little more about the second. And so, you know, we know that in the society, there are many, many social hierarchies, right? And we all have conditioning around them. You know, there are hierarchies related to gender, related to the way that people are racialized, the way they're told they 
are of a certain race. Uh, the way, you know, according to age, according to religion, according to educational level, physical appearance, um, I think, you know, sexual orientation and so forth. And there are all these hierarchies. And, you know, we are, each of us, you know, is going to be um, at the upper end of some hierarchies and the lower end of others, right? You know, just to be a young person is to be at the lower end. To be an older person is to be at the lower end. And there are all these hierarchies, and we all internalize all sorts of stuff, right? Everyone knows that, right? Everyone has looked at your stuff that you've internalized, right? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. And we internalize it even if we're at the lower end of the hierarchy. You know, if I am... Uh, if I am uh, gay or lesbian, I will internalize homophobia, right? If I will internalize racism, no matter what group I'm in, right? You know, they, the research uh, shows that. So there's enormous amount of material, and it's been interesting for me. I, I've been in uh, two groups uh, which have been looking at this. I'm in one group, uh, which we call, which is of uh, uh, Dharma teachers, and... Uh, male Dharma teachers, and we call it Dharma Dudes Deconstructing Patriarchy. <laughs> and we meet, we meet roughly once a month, and we look at our conditioning, right? We look at it together. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, a good space to do that. So um, I don't know how public we are, but I just gave it a little bit of publicity. But um, anyway, and I'm in, um, I'm in another group, which is people of Jewish background, looking at racial conditioning, you know, particularly being, you know, racialized as um, so-called white, you know, which was, um, which, which was my experience. Although when I was, you know, when I was younger, I think people in my community weren't sure if I was really white or not. I was sometimes treated as an other, right? So it's, uh, the conditioning is strange and bizarre in certain ways, right? But anyway, looking at that conditioning is really, really helpful. And there, we could take, you know, a number of sessions just looking at that. I think that's connected with exploring non-reactivity, right? Does that make some sense? Really looking at that in different ways. You can do it personally. It helps if you're doing it with others, maybe a friend or as part of a group. And then there's also the bringing of non-reactivity. You know, I should back up and say all the social conditioning predisposes us to be reactive, right? And we can see that the way our minds work, right? Although a lot of it is relatively unconscious, right? That's the tricky thing about the social conditioning. A lot of it is somewhere, but sometimes beneath the surface and not always obvious, right? The, that's come out in the research people have done on so-called implicit bias, right? Because I can have implicit bias that can go against my professed views, right? And the research has found that when there's a conflict between my unconscious bias and my professed views, the way I act is determined by the unconscious bias, not by my professed views. Very interesting, right? So in terms of uh, social action, what I have found in my, my own work is that there's a remarkable parallel between the teaching about dukkha and the end of dukkha and non-reactivity a remarkable parallel between the Buddha's teaching and the teachings about nonviolence 
that we find in the traditions of Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Dorothy Day, and many others. It's a very interesting parallel, you know, and I'll, I'll particularly talk about Dr. King, you know, he was coming from a Christian tradition where this was expressed, you know, more in terms of bringing love into social action and, and so forth. And seeing that, um, you know, everyone shares a basic goodness. This is what King thought, what Gandhi thought. It's there in the Buddhist tradition. And so what that means is our opponents are not the problem, right? What they do is the problem. Their actions are the problem. And this has sometimes been used as a way to raise children. And children can sometimes be told, you know, I love you, but what you did is a problem. Anyone ever received that message from a parent? Right? You know, I know I, I received that from my parents. I remember there's a story. My brother, when he was uh, five years old, was told by my mom he had done something like teasing another kid when he was five. And my Mom said, I love you, but what you just did isn't okay. And my brother, we heard the story. He said back to my mother, don't talk to me like a psychologist. Just spank me like the other parents do. <laughs> right? So anyway, he was, it was interesting for a five-year-old to talk like that. But that's what my brother, that's the story. And I, I heard there's another similar story where there was a, a like a three or four-year-old kid who um, had learned the same teaching from his parent. He was in the backseat of a car and uh, with a, a little girl about the same age. And he, you know, he said something that she didn't like and said, you know, um, you know, don't say that. You're a bad boy. And he said, there are, there are no bad boys, only bad actions. <laughs> Imagine that as a three or four year old, right? So, that's, that's, um, that's actually where King and Gandhi are coming from something uh, very, very similar. Um, this is, uh, Dr. King said, there is within human nature an amazing potential for goodness. Gandhi said this, belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds to the advances of love. So they're going to talk about love, talk about non-reactivity. King initially thought that the love ethic of Jesus was not suitable when you came to social realities. He said it was only, he thought it was only suitable for personal relationships. He thought that things were too messy with social realities. And then he said, I read Gandhi, and he said, I saw how mistaken I was. Gandhi was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. And that principle of nonviolence that Gandhi used comes out of deep traditions coming out of India you know, called ahimsa, non-harming, non-violence. It's there in the Buddhist ethical principles, particularly the second ethical principle that we work with is called non-harming. And the core principle is non-reactivity. And it's also brought together with 
kindness, and love. Non-reactivity. We have received something negative. What Gandhi and King said, we're not simply, you know, we don't simply let it go. We respond very strongly, but we do so non-reactively. Can you see how nonviolence is very similar to the teaching about dukkha and the end of dukkha? You know, the, the Buddha said, hatred never ends through hatred. Only by love and non-hatred does it end. This is from Dr. King. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an en enemy by getting rid of enmity. Hate destroys and tears down. Love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. And King also talked very explicitly about something that we could translate as non-reactivity. He expressed it in a little different language, but you could see it as being basically about whatever we have received, we don't react in turn. This is, this is some of Dr. King's language. One must follow a consistent principle of non-injury. One must refuse to inflict injury upon another. Another way of saying it, the means must be as pure as the ends, right? You don't get to a good end by negative means, is what he's saying. And acting out of reactivity would typically be a negative means. So it's not an easy teaching, right? It's not easy to understand what nonviolence looks like. But I, I, I see this articulation of nonviolence as a very clear expression of the teaching of the end of dukkha and of non-reactivity. Also from Dr. King, the end represents the means and process and the ideal in the making. So the means that gets us towards the end is the ideal in the making. So we have to, in our social change work, be anticipating what Dr. King called the beloved community anticipating the future society. We don't simply use negative means and somehow get to the place we want to get to. So again, uh, non-reactivity. Non maybe let's go to the slides now, maybe to end this. Uh, I had a bunch of slides which bring, bring this out because it's really can bring out this quality of non-reactivity. So the first comes from Dr. King. This is the aim. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. Again, a way of expressing non-reactivity. So we can see some of the, some of the examples of his um, organizing here in the March on Washington, and then the next slide in the Poor People's Campaign, nonviolent action. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, who organized nonviolent action in Vietnam until he was forbidden from returning when he made a trip away. So something very similar, nonviolent action born of the awareness of suffering and nurtured by love is the most effective way 
to confront aversity. And he goes on to add, this not on not in the slide share, other struggles may be fueled by greed, hatred, fear, or ignorance, but a nonviolent one cannot be cannot use such blind sources of energy, for they will destroy those involved and also the struggle itself. See the next slide. This is an example from um, uh, the late uh, Representative John Lewis, who's expressing again a different, he calls this nonviolent action, love in action. When we were sitting in, it was love in action. When we went on the freedom ride, it was love in action. The march from Selma to Montgomery was love in action. We do it not simply because it's the right thing to do, but it's love in action. That we love our country, we love a democratic society, and so we have to move our feet. So I think I'll stop there, Carlita. We won't use those other two slides. And I, I hope this has made some sense to you. I've been, I've been brief. I could take a much longer time, but I would like to, you know, what I'm maintaining is that these different interpretations of nonviolent social action are another way to talk about non-reactivity and to bring that into the social realm. So we can, in a way, bring non-reactivity into our own work with our own individual minds and our own individual practice. We can develop non-reactivity. Again, there's a lot more to be said for it in the context of relationships by developing skillful speech, working skillfully with differences or conflicts, uh, bringing our own inner practices into our relational lives. And then even in our participation in the larger social world, the teaching about dukkha and the end of dukkha can still be the basis for all we do. So what I'm wanting to say is that this teaching can be the guide for all the parts of our lives. And it can be understood really simply. Simple to understand challenging to put into practice, right? But the simplicity of understanding makes a difference, really can help. So let me end with that and just invite us to sit quietly for a few moments and see, what, um, see what's there for you. What have you found helpful? What do you feel you want to take from the talk uh, today and maybe the last few weeks? How can this help your practice? What questions do you have? Hey, let's go to our discussion now. I see uh, Christine, please. You can use the raised hand function or can uh, also, if you don't want to appear, you can use the chat and uh, Carlita will let me know. Christine, please. Thanks, Dr. Rutherford. Um, I'll do my best to be succinct. So I 
appreciate very much your acknowledgement of being a Dharma dude. Yeah. Um, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> I, uh, despite my first name, I'm actually Jewish on my mom's side. Yeah. And so, uh, one of my awarenesses, two things I just wanted to, to offer. Um, when we talk about non-reactivity, one of my awarenesses is as a white woman from a community that is generally fairly privileged in my generation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. We often invoke Dr. King, and yet I'm really aware that his kind of brother in arms, so to speak, Malcolm X, right, yeah. brought uh, an immediacy and a confrontation of Black Panthers, all those folks um, um, that I wasn't around for, but believe historically, just like Black Lives Matter, yeah. you know, I, I, I honestly feel that sometimes reactivity is required. And I'll just speak for myself as a woman, sometimes getting guys to hear me um, requires, you know, not being so loving and being not, not being hurtful or hateful, but being confrontational and assertive and kind of in people's faces. And yeah. I, so I just want to share that. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. And then the only other thing I wanted to say is um, when you spoke about suffering being a choice, most of my professional life has been in hospice supporting yeah. uh, individuals who are grieving. And so what I'm aware of and sometimes struggle with around the Buddhist notion of non-suffering or, or that suffering is an option is that I, I guess the simplest way to put that is I, I don't believe that. I actually believe that there are instances in life like loss, for example, that are meant to be suffered, that, that are not meant to be, and, and I don't suggest that you're saying otherwise, but yeah. I'm just putting out there that I, I actually don't always see it as a choice. I see it as part of the process, right? If somebody were to experience a significant loss and not be suffering, that would actually be problematic. So I'm just throwing that out there, those two things. I know that's a lot, but I'm just yeah. wondering if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, th th thanks so much, um, Lisa. Uh, really two really crucial uh, questions and um, and you know complex maybe maybe I can start with the second one first I think it may be a little little bit easier that um, I, I was quoting the the woman in hospice what I've actually come to in my own exploration and teaching I actually tend not to use the word suffering yeah, because of the possible confusion, because sometimes, you know, the teaching of non-reactivity is, is quite clear. But, um, you know, and so it's really crucial to be with what's difficult, you know, to be with what, because we also are in a culture which is often suppressive of people opening up to what's painful. So just in terms of language, I tend to use the word pain and then I use the word reactivity because suffering is used so ambiguously. I used to make a technical distinction, much like the woman did on her, on her poster by her bed, and give a technical distinction of suffering as something like resistance to the present moment, which, but that doesn't match with ordinary usage so well. And so I think there, yeah, I think it's a really crucial point that... Um, you know, it's, you know, especially with so much uh, reactivity to push away pain, it's often important to open up to it in different ways, right? So that, that, that sounds like we're pretty aligned right there. Now, the, the other point is a really interesting one and complex and powerful, 
you know, especially when we look to uh, you know, maybe look to um, the example of Malcolm X, or you're just saying, sometimes I need to be in the other person's face, right? And so I think the way I would um, approach this is we can still have non-reactivity as a core intention. In the moment, I might say to myself, you know, my long-term direction is, you know, non-reactivity, but I don't wait till I'm totally non-reactive to speak up. If I did that, I'd never speak up, right? And so, so, so then it becomes a practical question. Even though I'm somewhat reactive, is it wise for me to speak up now? Should I wait a little bit? That's a practical question. So I, I think what your what your question brings out is that it's would and I do I wasn't clear on this in my talk. We don't simply wait until we're totally non-reactive before we act, before we speak up, and before before we act. And um, you know, of course, and it's, it's also you know something we can't necessarily moralize about with people who are being reactive, right? Who are coming out of intense pain and simply, you know, yes, being reactive, but there's some something that they're speaking up for or acting for. So there are complexities there. And, you know, I think it, it depends on the person, but, and so we can look, you know, and again, it also, a lot, so much depends on the context, you know, you know, maybe, you know, like I, I find myself sometimes saying, um, you know, with people I know well, you know, um, you know, if, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat reactive. Is it okay if I speak up? Right. And I can, I can say that and people can, you know, can acknowledge it. And we just acknowledge that's part of the mix. Right. And that can be helpful with, you know, people one's close to, right. You know, I, you know, you don't wait to just say, okay, I've waited 13 days. Now I can speak about what happened <laughs> 13 days ago, right? So does that get at it some? And so, yeah, it's complex because so much, um, yeah, um, you know, we can have, you know, we can have movements where people are deeply trained in nonviolence and that's one thing, but that doesn't involve everyone. So King, you know, was very empathic towards people who we might say were quite reactive and that, you know, in certain ways. And there's also was, I think, uh, a great dialogue over the years, essentially between him and Malcolm X. You know, some people have written about that. So thank you. Nice. Okay. Who, who is next, uh, Carlita? Yes, we have Seema next. Okay, Seema, please. Okay. Thank you so much, Donald and everybody else for being here. Um, I feel like crying. Um, so there are so many different levels. I have to be brief, so I won't be able to say everything. But I was around during the civil rights marches and all that stuff going on in the South and everything um, in the 60s and 70s. And of course, it went on way before the 60s. But And my heart broke and I and all of that, but I hated the people who I saw as perpetuating it. So I wasn't in a in a um, non-reactive spot right, right. at all, um, and I've had to learn over the years, and it's been very very hard, particularly out after the presidency prior to this one, 
that um, it doesn't help to hate the people who are creating the suffering, even though that's what they're doing. Yeah. Because they're not the only ones. But then I also want to, and so that's hours and hours of discussion, which you just did. But then on the personal level, right from the very start, when you talked about like reactivity and the chocolate chip cookies, yeah. um, and wanting another chocolate chip cookie and another, I was an addict since that from the time I was 18 until I was mm. 60, until I was 47 or yeah. something. And that's about 60 years. I don't know how many years it is. I'm 73 now, but it was at least 40 years. And I'm not an addict anymore. Um, but certain ways of dealing and thinking and all of that became very prominent right. in my mind. And um, one of them was about money and your talk about the Donna. I was so poor because of all the money I spent on my stuff that I never had any money. And I still think of myself that way. So every week that I register, I push the zero money and then I don't pay anything. And so when you talked about that and the situation and you mentioned it being awkward, it's kind of awkward for me to talk about it too, but I've been pushing the zero since I started coming and I'm not an addict anymore. My money doesn't go toward just knocking myself out every week and I have enough money to pay something. And that is a change in my way of looking at it that also I think reverberates through probably everything I do that has to yeah. do with reactivity um, about how our, my thinking got frozen and it just unfroze a bit and yeah. unfrozen thinking is very important to me in dealing with the world. So I want to thank you for that, what you said, awkward little speech, but it, it put a crack in my own thinking that mm. is really helpful. Thanks, Seema, for for sharing that. And also, I think what it shows also is that some of our basis for different forms of reactivity, the grasping or the pushing away, can be found in habitual tendencies that go back a long time for many of us, even to childhood. And if we were going into more depth, you know, if we were having that six-month course, we would look at that as well. They're just these kind of deep patterns that we have. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Seema. Thank you. Who is next, uh, Carlita? Yes. Next we have Carolyn. Carolyn. Thanks, Carolyn. And if I can have room maybe for one or two more, but if we can be on the brief side, that would be helpful. I'm, I'm, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Good. Okay. Um Next week, I'm going back into a social situation. It's choir. And most of the people who speak out about social issues um, say things like, oh, the indigenous overreact. You know, not in Canada. That's why I get so upset about people thinking Canadians are not in as much of a pickle. But I either, the, the first person you spoke to, you gave a lot of food for my thought. Because what I do is I either freeze and say nothing, or I say something like, oh, are you a Holocaust denier too? So it's, it's and these are people who are, acquaintances, at best friendly acquaintances, 
and I want to go and sing, but it hurts my heart when they say these horrible generalizations. Yeah. Yeah, thank, thanks for sharing that, Carolyn. It's, um, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, relatively speaking, I gave a brief talk. This is so, gets so involved with those situations. And you can, you can study your own mind if you become reactive. You can try to be as skillful in those situations as possible, understanding the various complexities that we've we've looked at, um, definitely can keep with your own inner practice. And, uh, and again, maybe you might want to speak up and even if you're a certain percentage reactive, right? You have to see what, what seems wise, right? And so, um, and, and also to, you know, part of the study of reactivity is to study other people's reactivity and notice how it happens, which is, you know, fairly, the examples are not hard to find. Right, and so it's, um, yeah, but I think take it as practice and can be really helpful if you maybe have someone to talk to as well, who's, a, who's a, uh, also a practitioner. Thank you. Thanks, Carolyn. Let's do, let's just do one more. Is that, is next uh, Victoria? Yes. And if, again, if you can be on the brief side, Victoria, that'd be helpful because I'll, um, I'll try to be brief. I, I, I'll, def I'll defer to Christina Adams because uh, she rarely shares. So thank you. Oh, thank you for your generosity. Thanks, uh, Christina, please. Thank you, Victoria. So my question is really quick in the five aggregates. This is kind of whoop off, but no Dharma teacher ever talks about it. Yeah. The fifth aggregate is consciousness. Yeah. So I just want you to speak on consciousness for a moment. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be brief on consciousness. Um, in the teaching of the five aggregates, which are really the, you know, it's a, a model of the different... Um, dimensions of our experience. And uh, consciousness, the word in the original language is vinyana, V-I-N-N-A-N-A. And it's understood there um, as the knowing quality, and it's always related to an object in that understanding of consciousness. It's, uh, there's always a knower and a known. So it has, we would say it has a dualistic structure and, and it's, uh, there's a knower and a known. And essentially, the teaching is simply saying, for there to be experience, there has to be consciousness. Consciousness has the structure of there being a knowing. And then the content of the knowing would be something related to uh, one of the five senses along with the way that we might uh, complicate that with our thinking, reactivity, and so forth. But that's, that's just, does that help get at it in a simple way? Yes. Thank you. So, no, one, no one ever talks about it, and so that's my question for the next two weeks. So okay. thank you. Thank, thanks, Christina. Great. Great. And what was the, what was the question in the – was there something in the uh, chat that uh, – Carlita, that you can see. Thanks. There was a question about how do we relate this to the Russian and Ukrainian war? Okay. Um, 
people have another two or three hours to stay? Okay. Um, gosh, um, should I should I give a quick answer? Um, yeah, there, it's um, yeah, maybe maybe I can uh, hold that till the next time I speak. But I, I would say that um, um, yeah, uh, there. Yeah, maybe I better not try to say something in one minute, but just to say that uh, why, don't, why don't you look and see what you think. I think there's certainly, um, you know, there's can be a certain amount of uh, reactivity as well as all sorts of uh, injustice, again, or situations of injustice, oppression, and pain, uh, as well as different forms of reactivity. Um, um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there because I think it's too, it's a little more complex than I want to just have a one-liner which would be by its nature inadequate. Okay, so thanks for the question. I'll, I'll write that down for next time. And let's sit quietly. We'll close in two main ways. First is to be aware of your intentions going forward. Related to the theme of today or perhaps something else, what's your intention coming out of our time together? And then we close with the dedication of merit. May our time together be a benefit to ourselves, be a benefit to those in our own circles. And then ultimately, may it be a benefit to others. And the horizon, may our time together be a benefit to all others, which includes us. So thank you very much. And if you want to unmute, you can say hello. And thanks, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yay. Oh, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Carlita. Thank you, Donald. À la prochaine. À la prochaine. Thank you, yeah. thank you everybody. Yeah. Thank you. thank you. Thank you, one and all. Thank you, Seema. Thank you. See you next time. Till next time, everyone. Blessings for everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for your generosity with that question, Victoria. Thank you, Sylvia. I'll be in touch. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Kelly, Elizabeth, Rich, Jonathan. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.